Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaning of Health podcast. As you know, my name is Courtney, and unfortunately for this podcast, I'm not a part of it. And that's because Craig was uh, traveling in Melbourne and decided to do a podcast with Professor Stuart Kinner, uh, and I was not a part of this trip. So you won't hear me at all except for this introduction. Now, Professor Stuart Kinner and Craig have a conversation on how health is handled when people go to prison. It should be very, very interesting. Uh, But one thing that I do need to say is that there might be some background noise at the start of this podcast. So otherwise, enjoy the podcast. Hopefully it's interesting and hopefully you won't miss me too much. All right, so welcome everybody to the Meaning of Health podcast. Uh, my name's Craig and I'm fl- flying solo this week without my co-host Courtney uh, because I'm over in Melbourne and I'm over here for work, but I thought I'd take the opportunity to bring on a special guest onto the podcast. So I'd like to welcome Professor Stuart Kinner. Hello. <laughs> um, so I have to declare an interest here. So Stuart's actually one of my PhD supervisors, so we do know each other and have done a bit of work together before. We've probably been working together for about four four years or so, four or five years, on and off with various things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Stuart, would you like to just, for people who don't know you, introduce yourself, um, maybe tell us what your title is and where you work currently, what you're doing? Sure. Um, so Stuart Kinner, um, I, my employed job is I work at a place called the Murdoch Children's Research Institute mm-hmm. in the Centre for Adolescent Health, and I'm the leader of the Justice Health Group there. Um, but I spend probably as much time at the University of Melbourne and I'm also the head of a thing called the Justice Health Unit in the Centre for Health Equity at the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Um, So basically I lead a group of fabulous people who do research on the health of people who move through the criminal justice system. So I've also got appointments at Monash University, University of Queensland, Griffith University and University of British Columbia, just uh, reflecting some collaborations with those places. So you've got a lot of adjuncts yep. around the place, and anyone who's read any of your papers, by the time they've read the first page with your adjuncts on it, then they might have enough energy to read the rest of the paper. Absolutely. I think <laughs> they should just close it at that point and move on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really good. And that, that'll come up, I think, in our conversation today as we talk about some of the work you're doing and who you collaborate with and where that's mm-hmm. taking you around the world. Sure. Um, but just briefly... Um, you, you mentioned that you're into sort of corrections, uh, prison, uh, yeah. and how people move through there and what happens to them. So what are the, the sort of main areas that you kind of tend to focus on with that? Yeah, so I guess my PhD was, um, I spent about a year in a maximum security prison um, as a researcher, uh, going around and interviewing people. And my PhD was forensic psychology, so I was looking at personality disorder. Um, <laughs> And that was really interesting, but by the end of it, I was uh, realizing that I was kind of trying to find this minority of people who had a psychopathic personality characteristics and uh, ignoring the majority who just had really poor health. Um, so pretty much from 2004, when I finished my PhD, I've been focusing on the health of people in prison and then really, mo- in fact, less on people in prison, more on people after their release from prison. Uh, so that's been a lot of the work that I've done over the last 15 years, but more recently, uh, thinking more broadly, so working in youth justice, so young people in detention and serving community-based orders, people who come in contact with the police, and basically any context in which people are under sort of criminal justice sanction or have been. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty familiar with the psychopathy checklist then from your previous work? I am DDS, my PhD <laughs> focused on that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, and then now you've broadened your horizons and... You're more interested in what affects a bigger part of that population. Yeah, look, it's yeah. it's. I think it's a qualitatively different lens that I'm taking now, which yeah. is very much. Uh, I think it is just a classic public health lens. So really, uh, see, I'm not I'm not interested in the criminal justice system. Um, I'm interested in uh, vulnerable, marginalised people yep. and uh, the ways in which we can make their lives better and reduce health inequalities. And mm-hmm. it just so happens that the criminal justice system is one place that a lot of those people end up. Yeah, it's a very convenient place to catch capture people who have the some of the more severe problems in society isn't it yeah it is i mean i think that the the key narrative if you had to summarize 15 years of work in one sentence would be to say that uh, although we often do something to improve the health of people who are incarcerated um, when they get out typically people um, experience rapidly declining health and the net effect of incarceration is probably health depleting right okay so on the surface they might appear a bit healthier but 
there's a lot of underlying things that probably don't get addressed. Look, I mean, there are things that do get addressed. People get vaccinations, they might get diagnosed with conditions, they might get started on medications. The problem is that when people return to the community, often those things fall apart quite rapidly. So uh, the, the, the gains that we see in prison are often not sustained. Mm-hmm. Okay, so look, I'm interested in going back a couple of steps um, because I came to research a little bit later in my life. You know, I had a bit of a life before I you know, went back to uni and studied and... Mm started the PhD. What, what did you do before you got involved in research? So I, I, I've, uh, I've been working in research since 1995. So I, I kind of, you know, I went to university, uh, to school, went to university, did my undergrad, worked as a research assistant for a few years, did a PhD. So I've kind of been in research for most of my adult life. Yeah. Um, but it feels, as I said before, it feels qualitatively different what I'm doing now. I feel... Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the research is a vehicle for achieving what I hope is some kind of public good yeah. rather than a, a career or a mechanism for, you know, keeping busy during my day. Yeah. yeah. And what, what's motivated you to take an interest in, in what you have taken interest in? Was it, were there life experiences you had that you thought, oh, that's actually, you know, makes me interested in finding out more about this? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, you know, I always uh, I get asked that sometimes, like, why why are you doing this kind of work? Um, and I think when you look at people who do research in kind of public health areas, particularly around highly marginalised, vulnerable groups, they often have their own stories to tell. Um, mm. So, I mean, my dad was a police officer. Um, and you might think that would lead me to be a, uh, you know, have a different view about this. Um, but um, he was a police officer in Northern Ireland many, many years ago and uh has a very, very strong social justice view of the world that was ingrained into me from when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many stories about how, you know, you treat people with respect and, and people behave in ways that are respectful. If you treat people in ways that are uh, constraining and marginalising and stigmatising, then, you know, you reap what you sow. So right. I've, I've had that kind of worldview, I suppose, my whole life. Mm. Um, you know, I was a bit of a terror at school and, uh, you know, got into some trouble personally at school. Um, uh, you know, I, and I think a, a pivotal moment for me, I, I lost probably my best friend at the end of high school from um, substance-related reasons. Um, and it was a bit of a turning point for me where uh, uh, I think I was probably heading down a similar path um, and I was lucky enough to not have that happen and, and it mm. did happen to my friend. Um, and so it was a moment where I thought, uh, you know, I, and I, I th- so I guess I, I, I wanted to make a difference um, and coupled with that is a, a very deep realisation that I'm not better than anyone else. I don't, I certainly don't come to this area of work thinking, you know, I'm some sort of benevolent academic uh, mm-hmm. supporting the downtrodden. I just feel like a person who's trying to do something useful in society for other people in society who haven't had some of the opportunities that I've had. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that struck me working in this area is, it's not until you start working in the area that you realise what you don't know, mm. like anything really. Mm. And so we, a lot of people have that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth attitude about people who go to prison and who have been convicted of an offence or whatnot. Mm. And they think, oh, they need to be punished and they need to do their time and all that sort of thing. And there is, a, you know, there is obviously some merit in some of that. But I think uh, a lot of people think that prisoners should end up getting deprived of most of their, mm. their liberties and rights. Um, because of what they've done, you know. Yeah, and look, you know, people uh, from the criminal justice world, uh, the people talk about uh, incarceration having four functions. There's uh, punishment, um, deterrence, incapacitation and rehabilitation. And what's really interesting is when you start to look at the evidence to support those functions, things unravel pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so punishment, I mean, it's inherently, there's, there's no function of it other than to make a person suffer. By definition, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, incarceration is punishment, yep. tick. Um, deterrence, um, the evidence is not there. We know that, um, you know, the threat of incarceration doesn't stop people committing crimes. Um, uh, incapacitation arguably works. In other words, while people are in prison, they can't be in the community, but it's an incredibly expensive way to incapacitate people. And we know that the cost of incarcerating people is well over $100,000 a year per person in Australia. And that's not because it's a holiday camp. That's nearly all building and salaries for correctional officers. Um, and rehabilitation, we know it doesn't work. We know the more times people go to prison, the more likely they are to go back to prison again. So mm. it just doesn't work. And so what we have is a increasing narrative in society, and I think it is increasing, um, where people ought to suffer with this implicit assumption that it's going to somehow achieve some useful end. 
Mm. Um, and there's not enough evidence being brought to bear on this argument to say, well, no, that doesn't work. It actually um, it works against our shared interests. Mm. It is interesting that I did a sort of back of the uh, envelope calculation, you know, based on the, you know, varies between states, but somewhere between 100 and 150,000 a year to keep someone in prison, depending on which state or territory you're in in Australia. Yeah. And it, uh, with roughly 40,000 people in prison most of the time these days in Australia, yeah. it's, I think it's a bit higher than that now. Yeah. You're looking in the region of about $5 billion a year that's been spent on detaining people. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned those four supposed aims of prison um, and arguably none of them actually get achieved because people keep going back into prison all the time and um, they don't come out any safer for the community so people might think oh you're making the community safer by locking people up but actually a lot of the time from what I've seen from the people I've interviewed and whatnot a lot of them are, are more frustrated at the end than they were when they got locked up. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, this is a, uh, sort of shifting from the health narrative to a broader narrative about the societal function of prisons. Mm. And, um, you know, there is this mistaken assumption that it's going to stop people coming back and it, uh, that the evidence just isn't there. Mm. So we have this massive investment of public funds, taxpayers, people who are listening to this podcast, mm. and their money is being used um, to support an industry that actually compounds the problems that it purports to address. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and if, I think if people were better educated and they knew a little bit more about what actually is happening and what the actual results are as opposed to mm. let's bring back the death penalty and it'll get rid of all the people who do really heinous things, we know that doesn't work because countries where they have the death penalty, there's no less crime, there's no less really horrible uh, things happening. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, and also I think the narrative around incarceration is heavily focused on serious violent offences because they're the ones that get a lot of media mm. attention. And I think that that skews the debate a bit because people don't realise that the vast majority of people in prison either haven't committed any violent offences at all mm. or have committed very low-level violent offences. And most of the people who have committed those low-level violent offences have also been victims of them. And so all of this is really just a manifestation of inequity and disadvantage. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think if, if anyone took the time to look into the background of the people that do get locked up, a lot of it's, uh, in Australia in particular, a lot of them are related. Uh, they have family connections in the prisons, um, particularly in places where there's high Aboriginal uh, populations. Um, and it's almost a rite of passage in a sense. So people are not deterred from going to prison because they know a number of people in there already. Um, and you also find that they come from the lower socio-economic parts of society and they tend to cluster in various kind of neighbourhoods and suburbs around a city or, you know, around a town or whatnot. Um, and they're the ones that are just cycling in and out. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even a basic look at the evidence would quickly refute the idea that this is just bad people and they deserve to be punished. It's, mm. it's clearly not. I mean, and I think that the other side of the narrative is people make this uh, assumption that if, if I say things like this, um, I'm just saying that we should um, let people do what they want, you know, some highly permissive notion. And that's not the case at all. Um, I think what the people who look at the evidence would advocate is for doing something that actually works. Um, and we know that we can't incarcerate our way out of social problems, which is what we're currently trying to do, mm. um, you know, tagging along behind the heels of a United States that's now only just beginning to realise that it's... Uh, mass incarceration experiment has been a dramatic failure and is starting to try to find ways to reverse that. Yeah. And you mentioned social problems there and trying to deal with those through the justice system. And I think it was becoming really apparent from the work you've done and some of the work I'm starting to do is that it's not social problems in isolation, it's health problems and, um, you know, his historical trauma and, you know, kind of a lack of uh, opportunity and all of these things mixing together, isn't it, that leads to people ending up in prison? Yeah, so I mean, all of these things that co-occur. Um, and so, you know, people who in prison have poor health, um, you know, poor mental health, poor physical health, chronic conditions, infectious diseases, um, substance use problems, cognitive disability, learning difficulties, all of that set against the backdrop of entrenched, probably intergenerational um, socioeconomic disadvantage, unemployment, poor education, homelessness, mm -hmm. stigma, often experiences of racism, particularly for women in prison, experiences of trauma and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you name it, um, mm -hmm. people in prison have been through it. And uh, again, uh, you know, people will often see or hear this and think that it's a bit of an apologist thing to say as if, well, in that case, we should just let them get away with whatever they want to do. And that, again, mm -hmm. that's not the argument. The argument is to say, 
we have people in society who've had a really, really tough time. They've had really, really um, tragically difficult experiences and locking them up is not going to stop them behaving in ways that are a manifestation of those experiences. Mm. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't people who should be incarcerated. There are people who are manifestly dangerous. And right now, we don't have magic bullet solutions to that. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it's probably the case that we could have cheaper and more effective and more compassionate ways of addressing the societal issues as well as the individual issues of those people without incarcerating them in very expensive, dysfunctional public institutions called prisons. Yeah. And it is, I think that's the benefit of looking at prisons through a health lens, a public health lens, is that health is renowned for relying on evidence. I mean, that's how we've developed treatments and medications and mm. therapies that work is from trial and error and measuring things a lot. You know, hospitals routinely collect their data and share it and yep. researchers like us look at it and work out what's happening. Mm. And it seems like that's the opposite of what happens in justice and with justice policy a lot of the time mm. is that they're not, it's, there's a lot of ad hoc, we're going to try this and then we don't really know if it works or not, but let's just try it and see what happens. And oh, the crime rate didn't go down. Yeah. And it's almost like you're trying to... You know, someone comes in with a heart problem to hospital and you're trying to treat that problem by putting a bandage on their leg or something like that. You're not really getting to the core issue. You're looking at the symptom and then trying to guess what the cause might be. And I yeah. think that's what locking people up kind of is. Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's that, that's sort of true, but it is quite complex. That um, I think, I mean, firstly, the criminal justice system does count some things. They count the number of people going in and out. But um, one thing they don't do is is do a, an adequate job of counting the health issues in the people that move through their systems. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, irony, for example, of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare reporting annually on youth justice statistics without any reference to health. So mm. we now have a federally funded health agency reporting on the number of young people that we lock up but without any capacity to report on any aspect of their health and well-being because there's no jurisdiction that collects it in a way that they're willing to provide to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's not that there aren't data out there, I suppose. It's often that there's, a, there's not a culture of collating and using evidence to drive not only little pilot projects here and there, but policy at large. Mm -hmm. um, the reasons for that are complex. I mean, one large part of it, I think, is that uh, the criminal justice system is such a political football. It's so easy to uh, misuse the narratives around the criminal justice system to achieve political ends that it's, um, you know, one needs to kind of wade through the morass of misinformation and rhetoric to actually figure out what, what's going on, mm. much less what might work to improve what's going on. Yeah. And I guess we're, I mean, we, it sounds like we're you know, possibly having a bit of a negative conversation about this, but if we were to rewind 10 years or 15 years, um, we would have had a lot less information to work with than we do now, thanks to the work of people like yourself and Tony Butler and other people who've, you know, taken a public health look at what happens in prisons and whatnot. And based on the evidence that has been generated in that time and, and is continue, continuing to be generated, um, what are the, the kind of key challenges for this population from a health point of view? Look, I mean, we know that you name it, the, the prevalence of it is increased. I think, uh, I mean, a, a really good illustration of this is with respect to infectious disease. There was a, a publication a couple of years ago on the global prevalence of HIV, hepatitis C, um, hepatitis B and tuberculosis in prisons. Um, and when you look around the world, the prevalence of those very significant infections in prison populations varies enormously. Uh, and, you know, on one level, you might look at that and think, well, what patterns can we infer? But what is interesting is when you compare the prevalence in prison to the prevalence of those same infections in the surrounding communities, what is consistent is that the prevalence of those infections is higher in prisons. So in other words, prisons concentrate health problems in the community. Uh, there's a, a, an author, Mike Ross, who's characterised this as the sedimentation of disease. So basically, they, you know, wherever, wherever else they can't go, they're going to end up in prison. Mm -hmm. So you see very high rates of mental disorder, infectious disease, non-communicable disease, with an ageing prison population, increasing issues around um, declining cognitive functioning, chronic pain, mm -hmm. um, mobility issues. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a concentration of health problems. And again, that's only part of the picture. It's health problems in the context of socioeconomic disadvantage and stigma and racism. So it really is the pointy end of complexity in society. 
And why do you think that that's happened, that those things all, and they seem to be increasingly so, uh, do concentrate in prisons, whereas in the past perhaps the, there may have been other places for, the, for that group of people to go and get help in the community, but they seem to now, the prison is the default or, or the ED is the default or the police station is the default. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the ED. I think um, it, it's a useful analogy to think of prisons as the emergency department of the criminal justice system. So um, we know in the, in the emergency medicine literature that... Uh, you know, we want to try to reduce the number of people turning up to the ED. And there's all these things that we try to do that. We try to promote good health so that people don't have acute health problems. We try to triage people or divert people away from the ED to um, lower acuity health settings. When people go into the ED, we try to manage them in a way that means they won't come back. And then for people with complex presentations in the ED, we might provide some post-discharge care to try to maintain the health improvements gained in the ED. Uh, and really that's um, kind of what is meant to happen in the prison system, although the evidence to support all of that is considerably less. And when you think of prisons, unfortunately, truly, as a place that concentrates health burden in the same way as AD EDs, mm -hmm. the evidence is almost non-existent. We have almost no idea how to do that. So just mm -hmm. like in the medical world and in the health system, mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system, we see underinvestment in prevention and diversion and disproportionate investment in high-cost, acute, pick-up-the-pieces responses like emergency departments, like prisons. Mm. So it's just a, it's, it's something about the way our societies are structured, that we don't like to spend money up front to prevent things from happening, um, but we're uh, measurably more willing to spend larger amounts of money to pick up the pieces because we fail to prevent things from manifesting in the first place. Mm. And that sort of reminds me of, a, I think, the last podcast or two podcasts ago that we did where we actually covered prevention, public health prevention, you know, of uh, chronic disease and infectious disease. And um, I think around 5% of the medical research future fund budget is earmarked for, for prevention. The other 95% is for the, the kind of sexier treatments, you know, cures for cancer and that sort of thing. Uh, and that 5% is actually up from 1% in a lot of state budgets for prevention. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, prevention is a really, has proven to be a, a really cost-effective way of stopping people from having poor outcomes, but a, yeah. a tiny fraction of the budget gets, you know, spent on yeah. it. Yeah. And look, you know, again, there's, we could spend uh, an entire podcast talking about that. I mean, one of the many reasons why, certainly in the, in the criminal justice arena, why it's very challenging to invest in prevention and all of those sort of upstream um, interventions is well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that um, the outcomes that you're trying to achieve won't manifest within a political cycle. Mm -hmm. So what's the um, incentive for politicians to take the risk of investing in those things? Um, the, then there's the, the issue of uh, perceived inequity whereby uh, prevention in the context of the criminal justice system would mean spending our taxpayer dollars disproportionately on people who are at highest risk of contact and then you have situations where people say, well, what about me? I'm a law-abiding citizen. I've got a job. Why don't I get supported housing? Why don't I get this? Why don't I get that? Right. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a real uphill battle, um, mm. despite the evidence that those sorts of interventions, mm. when they're properly executed, can work. Yeah, and it's not the first time politics interacts with uh, science, if you like, um, mm. to kind of muddy the waters and make the message a bit less clear and, easy and harder to, to follow. Indeed. I mean, and I think, you know, policy is not just a direct function of evidence and it never was and never will be. I mean, there was a time as I um, went behind the PhD student, I hoped it might be, um, but it's not. But um, I think there are, there are policy decisions that are about values and appropriately so. Um, there are other policy decisions and it's not a black and white, but mm -hmm. there are policy decisions that are um, uh, asserted to be a function of evidence. You know, mm -hmm. we are spending your taxpayer dollars on this because we assert that it works. Mm -hmm. Those are testable hypotheses. This is where science can come in and say, mm -hmm. are you indeed achieving the outcome that you claim to be achieving? Mm -hmm. This is where evidence comes in. Um, and you spoke before about the fact that there seems to be a, a lack of evidence to drive um, policy and practice in this area. You know, we've coined a term for that, which is epistemophobia or the pathological <laughs> fear of knowledge. And it's certainly something that characterises this area. I mean, there is an almost pathological fear of knowledge and scrutiny um, in the sector. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes get the uh, feeling that by raising something or identifying something, people are worried they might actually have to do something about it. And so it's easier to kind of keep that to a minimum and just carry on as usual because that's comfortable, you know. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, and, you know, you talked about not being too cynical about this. There are clearly um, pockets of good practice, pockets of reform um, and pockets of optimism. But again, what we really need to start doing as researchers, and I'm a researcher in this area, is uh, working with those pockets of good practice and reform um, to generate evidence and then to advocate strongly from that evidence to achieve reform that's not a pilot project, that's not a little pocket of good practice here. You talked mm-hmm. about our almost $5 billion a year correctional system. Um, spending, you know, a million dollars somewhere for a pilot project sounds very exciting, but what about <laughs> the $5 yeah. billion dollar system? You know, yeah. we, need, we need strong evidence to bring things to scale. Yeah. And you've mentioned those those good pockets of practice that you've you come across over the years. Do you have any examples or anywhere that you could point to that people might be interested in to know where there is some good work being done and where other states or territories or jurisdictions might you know take take uh, lead a lead from them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think um, there are pockets that appear to me pocket, to be pockets of good practice, but often the evidence to support that is is poor. So, in other words, I'm giving my opinion that they're good practice, um, but mm-hmm. there are things that are that are manifestly good ideas. Um, so, for example, I mentioned before that um, although we can obviously do better in terms of addressing health needs for people in prison, the much bigger issue is that health typically plummets when people return to the community, and so. Uh, in instances where we invest in supporting people after release from prison in a way that maintains and perhaps even builds on those health improvements, that seems like a no-brainer to me. It seems like a really good idea. One example um, in British Columbia and Canada at the moment in the context of an opioid overdose crisis is that the province has invested in what they're calling community transition teams. So those CTTs or community transitions teams involve a social worker and a peer, which is really important, that's somebody who's experienced incarceration work together to support a person transitioning from prison to the community, help them to meet their needs. And although the primary focus of this is to prevent overdose deaths, it's a social worker. Um, It's not an addiction medicine physician. And that social worker is helping that person find accommodation, help them find an income, help them work on their relationships, help them access mental health services if they need it. And the reason for that is that we know that the way to prevent overdose, for example, isn't just to say, don't do drugs. It's to address all of those structural drivers of overdose risk that we, you know, the, again, the evidence strongly points to as being important risk factors. Yeah. So that's just one example of that. Once again, that's a pilot project that's not at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, another example from North America is transitions clinics. So Emily Wong and her team at Yale have done a beautiful job of evaluating a transitions clinic, which again is partnering in this case, a primary care physician with somebody who has lived experience of incarceration and in that case, it's supporting people with chronic conditions coming out of prison in San Francisco. It started. They've now got a number of these clinics around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about giving people access to healthcare and helping people um, who probably have limited capacity to do so support to navigate messy, complex health and social and welfare systems. And again, the randomised trial of that um, clinic is showing that it's quite effective. Mm-hmm. So where there have been um, uh, projects like that implemented, um, there's really promising evidence emerging, but uh, it's quite remarkable, in fact, that even with that compelling evidence, those sorts of interventions are not to scale. Mm. Um, you know, the, you know, the proportionate investment in that sort of um, transitional support is very low, mm-hmm. uh, while we continue to invest extraordinary sums of money yeah. um, in incarceration. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think one of the things that's become apparent since working a little bit in this this sector is that there's a really pronounced gap between life in prison and life in the community. And it's almost like the, that separation is artificially preserved mm. to the point that people are stopped from doing a lot of things in prison that, they're, that they wouldn't ordinarily do in the community. And it's like the community kind of goes on with its regular life whilst these people are locked up in a, some sort of time warp and then they get released. And like you're saying, they struggle to navigate all of the things that they need to do. And it seems to be more about breaking down those barriers between prison and the community so that normal life is kind of normal, whichever side of that fence you're on. You know, you still have to take responsibility for the things that you need to do every day. Mm. Um, You know, you have to think for yourself, you have to plan ahead, you have to know that you've got to pay your bills and you've got to, you know, have an income of some sort and go to the doctor when you need to and these sort of things. Uh, And I feel like that's the big challenge we probably have and these sorts of um, interventions that you're talking about seem to be the, the way forward 
from what I've seen. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's interesting that the the definition of incarceration almost is deprivation of liberty, right? So it's it's the removal of choice and autonomy, and yet. I mean, which is quite ironic because what we want to do is give people agency so that when they return to the community, when they're no longer being compelled to do the things that we wish for them to do, they choose to do those things anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so prison is actually the worst possible training ground in some senses for um, helping people to become the people we'd like them to be. And we boot them out the door of prison and expect magically things to be better the next day. Um, and it really starts to challenge the notion of what's incarceration about. Um, you know, what is it that we're actually trying to achieve? And if, if you know, a rational operator would think that it's, it's about rehabilitation from a criminal justice perspective, so trying to reduce the chances of someone committing those crimes again from a public health perspective, it's about addressing people's health needs, but doing it in a way that promotes autonomy and agency once again, so that once people return to the community, they're less likely um, to experience those health problems. And we know from some work that we've done at University of Melbourne that that's extremely expensive. So Catherine Snow, who works in our group, has led a paper showing that the costs, um, the healthcare costs for people released from prison in Australia are markedly above what you would expect for people of that same sex and age and Indigenous status. So what we're seeing is that because of our failure to invest in transitional care, specifically focused around health, we're all, we're spending that money anyway. But as discussed before, instead of spending that money to build on the health gains that we may have achieved while people are incarcerated, mm-hmm. we're instead spending it transporting them in ambulances to the ED um, to bandage them up and then send them back out on the streets to continue to have poor health and justice outcomes. And everyone loses in that situation. Society loses, the people lose, the, the people working in the hospitals and the ambulance lose because they're picking up people in distressed states all the time and mm. you know at risk of violence and whatnot. So yeah, it does seem a bit counterintuitive. Um, that yeah, we we would put resources into the yeah the symptom rather than the cause. Well, it is. I think it is. Uh, not everybody loses. I think that the system that's perpetuated through this arguably wins, and I think that's the problem. It's about reframing what we're trying to achieve, and mm. um, that of course requires political leadership. And this is the the moment where we transition from evidence to advocacy. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, again, as a a young researcher, I had this notion that I didn't need to advocate. All I needed to do was generate the evidence and then through some magic process, it would suddenly manifest in policy and it doesn't. Um, And so advocating from evidence, I think, is absolutely critical in this area. Yeah. The squeaky wheel gets the oil, doesn't it? Mm. Um, Yeah. Interesting. So we're talking about uh, justice and prisons and whatnot, you know, in a first world context, you know, developed countries. And I know that your work has taken you around the world to different places. And in particular, I know you did a project in Fiji at one point, didn't you? Yes. Do you have any sort of insight into your view of how this, how justice and these sort of issues get handled in the developing world? Uh, very variably. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we know is that we don't have nearly enough information about um, prisons or about prison health systems in low and middle income countries. It's a massive, massive gap in our knowledge base. You know, if we think it's bad here, um, have a look in some other countries. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I did learn, particularly from Fiji, is that fewer resources doesn't necessarily mean that things are worse. Um, so we did a project in Fiji where we partnered with um, a community organisation and we did a study where we recruited people prior to release from prison. We interviewed them, we took some um, health assessments and then we followed people up into the community to find out how things went for them. So it's called a longitudinal study. Um, and one of the things that struck me about the culture of that prison is that even though their resources were very limited, it was a very positive culture. Um, you know, and there are, there are so many little manifestations of that positive culture. One that comes to mind is that um, they really supported people in prison to build little micro-businesses that they could take with them back into the community. So, for example, give that person a couple of chickens um, and, you know, they can breed the chickens and, you know, the eggs and the chickens are used to feed um, people in prison. But then when that person goes back into the community, they can take their cage, they can take some chickens and they can take some of the money because the money that the prison system paid for the eggs and the chickens went to that person's prison trust account. Mm-hmm. Now, what's quite remarkable is if you can you imagine that happening in Australia, for example, I can imagine people being up in arms about us giving a free ride to criminals and you know, mm-hmm. all that sort of a narrative. 
Uh, and yet in Fiji, it's seen as just a sensible idea. Mm. You know, it's a way of ensuring that people return to the community with the capacity to generate an income and a meaningful pro-social activity. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and that's not because they have more resources. The resources were very thin on the ground. Um, having said that, um, you know, there were really, really poor health resources in that setting. So I'm not saying that we take the resources away and everything will be great. Um, but I'm saying that solutions aren't always about spending more money. Mm. It's about culture shift as much as it's, it's a, about reallocation of resources in a way that is rational and compassionate. Yeah, being creative. Mm. Um, that often happens in, in you know, lower middle income countries. Uh, mm. You're more likely to, or you're less likely to see people going without purely because everybody does chip in and, and kind of look after each other a bit more, even mm. though they've got less. Yeah. Uh, people don't starve and, and that sort of thing as much as they might in our society. Mm. I mean, certainly there are examples of prison systems around the world, again, um, notably including some low and middle income countries where the situation is extremely dire, where, um, you know, there's gangs rule the prisons. I'm thinking Brazil is a place where there's particular concerns around violence in prisons at the moment, where there's enormous overcrowding. Um, and in addition to the security implications of that, the health implications are profound. And we know that tuberculosis, which is um, promoted in environments where people have compromised immune systems and they're in highly congregate closed settings. Mm -hmm. um, and yet in a number of countries, what we do is we get those very people and put them in those very settings. Mm -hmm. um, and then we send them back out in droves into the community. And it's, um, you know, that kind of system and, um, has been characterised as a disease pump. And, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, that's a, a fair characterisation. So to the extent that we funnel people with communicable diseases through prisons and do all the wrong things in response, we're actually spending taxpayer money on a disease pump. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in the same um, context as Jon Snow with his water pump. Precisely. Back in the day. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. And so... That, that travel and that work you've done around the world has led you to uh, collaborate with a lot of different people and, and work on different projects and whatnot. Are there a couple of those that you want to talk about in more detail that people might be interested in? Yeah, sure. I guess, uh, you know, just consistent with this notion that this is a, a global public health issue. It's not a, a niche Australian criminal justice issue. So the World Health Organization in Europe has actually had an active health and prison program since the mid-90s, and it's really been a, a leader in this field in that respect. Uh, and so with support from Public Health England and the UK Collaborating Centre for Prison Health, um, they've produced a number of fantastic summaries of the evidence, such as it is, um, understandably and appropriately a little bit Eurocentric because it's, it's serving European member states. Um, uh, most recently, one of the things that they've done is, uh, for the first time ever, collected information on prison health and prison health systems from across Europe. So um, they undertook a survey called uh, was the Health in Prison European Database, or HYPED. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that the Justice Health Unit at University of Melbourne is doing now is working with WHO. Um, we've recently finished a report that summarises, for the first time globally ever, um, the situation with respect to prison health in an entire WHO region, being in Europe. Um, and we're now looking at the potential to expand that to other WHO regions, eventually to make this a global prison health data collection. Now, that sounds desperately ambitious, but we have global health data collections in many other areas. Um, and despite the incredibly concentrated prevalence of poor health in prisons, it's this almost unique exception mm -hmm. in where we collect data um, and collecting information on health problems is not enough to fix them, but it's probably a necessary precondition. It's step one. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and expanding that not only to prison systems around the world, but also to other closed settings such as youth detention centres. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a really promising area. It's a massively ambitious agenda, but it's one that really is gaining some traction and there's interest from um, a lot of sectors, government, non-government, philanthropy, to, to try to move that forward. Um, so I think in the next 10 years, we're going to see some really exciting developments in that area. I think the other thing that's um, happened recently that's of note uh, in another WHO region, the Americas, the Pan-American Health Organization, or PAHO, um, uh, recently finished off a high-level commission on inequities, uh, health inequities, uh, and that was led by Sir Professor Michael Marmot, who's... Mm. Uh, synonymous with health inequalities research. Yeah. 
Uh, and one of the things that came from that is that we, uh, a number of us from around the world, got together. And the fact that so many people got together, including again WHO, um, to make a submission to that high-level commission that was thinking very broad brush across the Americas, not prison specific, just thinking mm-hmm. about health inequalities in the Americas. Um, uh, you know, we we made a submission making the point that prisons and youth detention centres are a very important part of that. And so the argument re- was really to say. Let's stop thinking of prisons as some other world and you know, people in prison as some other species of human beings that we don't need to worry about and that we can stigmatise and marginalise because these are people, the most vulnerable people in our societies who come from disadvantaged communities and return to disadvantaged communities. And so what we argued is that uh, really addressing the health needs of people who experience incarceration is an important and forgotten part of a global health equalities agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we now have our sustain- Sustainable Development Goals, or the SDGs, mm-hmm. uh, one of which is around reducing inequalities. And so we've made the argument that um, addressing the health of people who experience incarceration is part of that. Mm-hmm. And having some basic data on the health needs of that population and our existing investment in health services for that population is really step one. Yeah. So where we're at, I think, is at the beginning of something promising. We're at the beginning of... Uh, a change in mindset, at mm-hmm. least from the global perspective, and hopefully that will trickle down eventually to the domestic perspective, mm-hmm. um, where we're, we're rethinking what a prison is. Um, yeah. It's not a place where we go to send people that we don't like and uh, think of that as problem solved. Um, it's a complex, expensive, dysfunctional system, mm. um, and the way we change it is relevant to um, how our societies move forward and to our efforts to reduce health inequalities. So reframing prisons as a place where people are getting what they need as opposed to having things done to them as a punishment is probably, is, I think, what you're getting at. And the fact that uh, serious violent offences are a tiny, tiny percentage of the overall crime that gets committed in most places, mm. I think that's, you know, it's a pretty sustainable argument. Um, and, you know, there's been countries that I'm aware of that have led the way in terms of step one of that, which is measuring what needs doing. And uh, I recently wrote a paper that um, used a lot of data out of Sweden mm-hmm. uh, and they routinely do a, a reasonably long interview with everybody who comes into any of the prisons in Sweden. And that data are made, those data are made available to researchers to find out what their problems are. And yep. so based on that, we can kind of come up with some solutions and Absolutely. And then everybody points to the Scandinavian countries and says we should all do what the Scandinavian countries do. Um, And maybe we should. Um, uh, But but I think there's a degree of fatalism around that and people just think we'll never get to do what they do. But there are certainly things we can do. I mean, in Australia, we now have uh, a national prison health data collection Mm. um, administered by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. And that's a a fabulous um, national asset. It's something that other countries are envious Mm. of. I just want to touch on your comment about prisons being a public health opportunity. And I think, you know, the evidence is there. It's undeniable that they are. But it's one has to be really careful about this, right, that, uh, um, you know, there are, there are people who will, I think, understandably um, react very negatively to that characterization of prisons because um, it could be understood to suggest that incarcerating vulnerable people is a good thing because mm-hmm. we can meet their health needs. So clearly the ideal world would be to find ways that address those health and social needs in a way that also reduces the risk of reincarceration without sending people to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can just briefly mention another global initiative, and so it's just to, to point out that there are these mm-hmm. um, intersecting global agendas that are, that are promising um, the, the UN General Assembly uh, a few years ago um, uh, commissioned a, a study called the Global Study of Children Deprived of Liberty. Uh, and what that was doing was looking at all of the different circumstances in which young people are deprived of liberty, including youth detention centres. Um, so our contribution to that was just doing a review of the health of young people deprived of liberty in those settings. And so the narrative that we've, that we've come up with, and this is going to be presented to the General Assembly in, in New York later this year, is that um, we don't in any way to, uh, advocate for detaining young vulnerable people. We note that it's, in at least in some countries, the case that, unfortunately, that's the place they're going to get the best health care they're ever going to get. That doesn't mean we should start locking up more vulnerable young people, 
but it does mean that if we're successful in reducing incarceration, and the argument applies equally to adult prison settings, mm -hmm. um, those efforts to reduce incarceration need to be met with commensurate efforts in investing in community services that will meet those people's health needs in the community. Mm -hmm. Almost certainly that will be both cheaper and more effective. Yep. We just need to get over the political hurdles that lie between us and there. Yeah, and there's that initial period of a little bit of additional investment as opposed to replacing the investment that governments have to be convinced of, I think, from a policy perspective. But, mm. you know, where there's a will, there's a way, usually. Mm. Um, but it sounds like the idea of prison as kind of a, a safety net rather than a, um, a first choice solution. Mm. So if people get themselves in a situation where they do actually need that intensive kind of supervision, for want of a better word, even though that they are being locked up, yeah. um, but obviously the first choice would be to try and address their needs without having to lock them up, you mm. know, you know in a, um, a less formal setting or more relaxed setting with people who are not um, uh, prison officers or police. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child requires that we use detention as a sanction of last resort for mm -hmm. children. Um, there was a brief period where the Queensland government um, omitted that from its legislation. Right. Uh, fortunately, those um, days are over. Uh, but, but there's no comparable um, international human rights instrument with respect to the incarceration of adults. So there is no international human rights requirement to use incarceration as a sanction of last resort, to, to the best of my knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not about it. It's not fundamentally a human rights argument um, on, in one level. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that we can come at it from, from an evidence-based perspective where we can say, well, right, what is it that you want to achieve? Mm -hmm. um, what you're doing now is not achieving that. Here are some other things that the evidence would suggest will achieve that. Set your values aside, you know, no matter where your human rights um, flag is planted in the ground, mm -hmm. this works. Yeah. And I, and I think that kind of feeds into a, and this is something that's going to be interesting to see what happens as time goes on into an economic argument as well, where people who might be socially conservative and economically conservative may see the merits of investing or using the money in a different way that is mm. economically more sound, even though it might be socially more liberal. You know, more liberal approach. Yeah, you, you may or may not have seen the the recent policy um, position issued by the Australian Policy Institute, specifically with respect to WA prisons, and and pointing out that the incarceration rate in WA is inordinately high, and that Indigenous people in WA have the highest incarceration rate of any people in the world. Um, and they're arguing, of course, that it's just unsustainable and a very poor use of taxpayers' money. And now, the API is a very right-wing conservative um, policy think tank mm -hmm. um, and what was fascinating for me who comes from a more sort of left-wing uh, public healthy perspective is that I nevertheless agreed wholeheartedly with their argument mm -hmm. and I find that wonderful because I think one of the challenges in this sector has been this polarization of debate into left and right and um, yeah. and so when we have aligning agendas that um, that's a terrific opportunity for policy reform with the conservatives who are arguing from an economic perspective mm. and liberals who are arguing from human rights or, or inclusion or public health perspective. When there's agreement on what we do about it, even if we come at it from different sort of value systems, yeah. that's a great opportunity. Yeah. So two different ideologies can collide mm. and can agree um, based on the evidence yep. and, and what you know seems to be a sensible response. Um, so how would you say... Um, that in your experience, just touching on some of the work you've done in other parts of the world, how does Australia stack up when compared to some other countries and the way we do corrections? Sure. Well, I mean, our incarceration rate is around the middle of the road, but mm -hmm. it's rapidly increasing. Mm -hmm. um, so we're certainly heading in the wrong direction in that respect. Um, and I think in Australia, we're certainly moving to a more right-wing conservative uh, narrative around incarceration, which is unfortunate because notwithstanding the recent API um, document, um, that typically translates into uh, um, an approach that's diverging further and further from the evidence, mm -hmm. um, saying that in fewer words, we're doing what doesn't work mm -hmm. and we're not doing what does work. Yeah. Um, that concerns me. There are some things that we're doing exceptionally well. Um, uh, we're collecting information on the health of people in prison, uh, and that's commendable and um, as I mentioned, you know, some other countries have approached Australia and, and expressed their um, their interest in trying to adapt that system for use in those countries. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing well in that respect. Um, where we're doing drastically badly is in our incarceration of Indigenous Australians. And we know that the rate um, of incarceration for Indigenous people in Australia is 13 times that of non-Indigenous people, even after adjusting 
for age differences. So if you're an Indigenous person, you're 13 times more likely to be incarcerated. If you're an Indigenous young person, you're 24 times more likely to be in youth detention than a non-Indigenous person. Now, um, now, there's no way you can argue that that's in any way a function of bad people doing bad things. No. That's about bad policies achieving bad outcomes. Yeah. Um, that's one of our drastic failures. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, another, um, everything's got a silver lining. Another thing that Australia is doing badly, not uniquely so, um, is excluding people in prison from Medicare and PBS subsidies. So mm-hmm. um, this is a problem in the US as well. Right. Um, uh, and uh, it concerns me that we might be going down a US road in terms right. of our health policy. So, so um, ju- just for people who mm. might who might not uh, sort of understand that in great detail, what essentially does that mean with regards to them being able to go to do a GP or get get basic treatment? Sure. So you or I or anybody else in the community in Australia can go and see a GP, and you know some GPs will bulk bill, meaning we don't pay anything out of our pocket; it's paid out of taxpayer dollars. Um, uh, we can access an enormous array of medications and no matter what the cost is, we only pay a small proportion of that. Uh, even if you've got a high income, it's less than $40 for a $10,000 medication. Now, people in prison don't have access to that. Um, that doesn't mean they don't have access to health care. Um, in fact, in every Australian jurisdiction, there's a chunk of money spent on prison health care. And there are some things that are done really well in that setting um, and it's a different setting, so we can't just make it exactly the same as in the community. Mm-hmm. But in practice, there are some very specific, clear problems associated with what we're doing. So again, you or I could go to a GP in the community and if we've got a mental health problem, um, at no cost to us, we can get a mental health care plan. And then we can go and see a mental health professional, a psychologist or, or someone like that, um, and have up to 10 free or very cheap mental health sessions um, uh, every, every calendar year. Mm-hmm. Um, in prison, despite the fact that 8 out of 10 people have a mental disorder over any 12-month period, so it's kind of normative to have significant mental health problems, that's not the case. Um, and some work that we've recently done on prison mental health benchmarking shows that our current level of prison mental health services is only a fraction of what it should be anywhere in the country. In other words, we're locking up the people with significant mental health problems and we're failing to provide even close to adequate mental health care. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to have a go at people working in the sector. Right. It's a problem of funding. We just mm-hmm. don't have the money to do anything like what we, what we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some authors refer to prisons as the, as the mental asylums of the 21st century. Indeed. I mean, they absolutely are. I saw one statistic from the US federal system, I think it was, where... Um, there were 30,000 hospital um, uh, psych hospital beds in the community um, and 300,000 uh, people with serious mental illness in prison. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, the evidence is clear that, uh, you know, indeed, um, prisons are the new asylums in many ways. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the other part of this problem is that although we woefully underinvest in prison mental health services, um, we do spend a lot of money medicating people with mental health problems in some jurisdictions. and That varies quite considerably from mm-hmm. one jurisdiction to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that the evidence is clear that although um, psychiatric medications can be part of the solution, they're never the entirety of the solution for anyone with significant mental health problems. Um, so again, we're uniquely diverging from what we know what works in prison settings um, to our own detriment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it leads to societies that are less safe and more disrupted in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Less safe, uh, more expensive. Um, So if we care about public health or public safety or sensible use of taxpayer money, we should perhaps think about doing some things differently. Yeah. So for anyone that um, may be inspired by something they've heard today, um, you know, to, to act and to try and effect change, at you know a government level, and we're not talking about reform because I don't like that word. I'm talking about yeah. a policy shift or a, you know incremental change because that's usually how these things are achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been your experience in dealing with policymakers, and how how would you approach them, and what have you found to work and not work in in the past? So I think it depends a lot on the on the policymaker in question, mm-hmm. um, but I, I guess I do find that um, at least one argument will resonate. So I would encourage people to approach their their local politician. Um, and to make their views known. And I would encourage people to try to have a look at the evidence and Google Justice Health Unit, University of Melbourne, you can see a lot of the evidence that we've produced there. Mm -hmm. 
form a view, figure out what you think is going to work, um, and then tell your politician that you want them to advocate on your behalf um, for policy reform or policy change or investment of public dollars in a way that actually achieves change. Tell your local member that you don't want rhetoric, um, that you want substantive evidence-based policy. Mm-hmm. Right. Some good words. Um, and uh, just to finish up, so currently, I was just going to touch on currently what you're focused on and, and what you've got planned coming up because obviously you're your career seems to have started in a certain place and as time's gone on, the, the questions that you're trying to answer sort of change a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what's your, your area of focus and, and where do you think you're, that's going to lead you in the future? Look, I think our, our work is increasingly shifting outside of the kind of domestic, almost parochial what's happening in Victoria or Queensland or WA and outside of just what's happening in Australia and really uh, I think starting to reframe these issues in a public health and health inequalities lens. And the reason why I think that's important is that um, the evidence hasn't worked. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence gaps. There's a lot more research that needs to happen. But um, producing compelling evidence and speaking to state or territory politicians or Australian federal government politicians and saying, here's the evidence, can we do this, is not working. What we need is um, a values-based narrative um, we need a, um, a cultural shift, a change in the zeitgeist. And the only way we're going to achieve that is by creating momentum. Mm-hmm. There is momentum internationally. There is momentum globally. And I think it's important that Australian decision makers appreciate the ways in which they risk being left behind. Um, and the work we're doing with WHO in Europe is an example. The work that we're doing on the UN Global Study, um, the PAHO Commission, all of these efforts to try to um, articulate in very public settings uh, that we owe it to society as well as to the people who are currently experiencing incarceration to do things that work. Mm-hmm. And uh, just finally, there's, uh, there's a line that you often use when I've seen you give presentations, and that is that there's a cost to the status quo, maintaining the status quo. Mm. So I thought that was a really good way of summing up a pretty simple idea. And Just for people who are listening, what do you mean by that? So I think there's a reluctance to change in this sector. Um, uh, I mentioned before this idea of epistemophobia. We're scared of new knowledge or scrutiny. Um, And I think there's a real uh, tendency to be risk-averse. And it's understandable in some ways because we're dealing with very sensitive, difficult decisions when it comes to incarcerating people, particularly the small subset of people who've committed serious violent crimes. So there's this inertia. Um, But the point that we're trying to make is that uh, just doing what we've always done is has a cost. It's not that we, you know, the the narrative is not try something new. It may work out well, or there may be some downsides. Mm-hmm. We're already experiencing enormous downsides. We're already seeing uh, the almost routine incarceration of Australia's first peoples. Um, we're already seeing increasing incarceration rates and spending over five billion dollars a year in taxpayers' money to grow a system that's demonstrably ineffective. Mm-hmm. And that $5 billion is really only a small part of the cost when we think about police and courts and unemployment benefits for people who are unable to find employment with a criminal label. So mm-hmm. there's an enormous economic cost in an action. There's a public health cost in an action because of um, the entrenched health problems and disadvantage experienced by people who churn through the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an enormous human rights cost um, you know, we, we're, we're paying lip service to reducing inequalities domestically um, and as part of a global push towards our sustainable development goals. And yet the evidence such as it is would suggest that we're actually moving in some respects in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So important, look at the costs that we're paying today. Forget about the risks of, of doing something innovative and effective mm-hmm. and at least acknowledge that the price that we're paying at the moment um, is considerable and Get a bit upset about that. If there are people listening to the podcast, get mm. a bit annoyed. Do mm. you really want to spend your hard-earned taxpayer dollars on something that doesn't work and make society less safe and less equitable? Mm-hmm. I'd suggest probably not. And at the opportunity cost of not having funding for schools and other things that people do want, right? Schools, hospitals, roads, all the things that we want. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a really good note to finish on. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, if they're interested in what you've been talking about and, and uh, have any questions or anything, what's the best way of them doing that? Sure. So you can Google us and find all of our email addresses. Uh, just search for the Justice Health Unit at the University of Melbourne. 
Uh, we have an account on Twitter, um, so you can find us there as well and reach out to us that way. Uh, we're very happy to communicate, talk to people, um, provide feedback and, and hear what people think about all of this. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Stuart. It's been great. Pleasure. And uh, yeah, for those listening that want to get in touch with the podcast, uh, you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com, and you can also get us at Twitter on at health means what. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.